Well, good morning, Fellowship Nashville. Is this thing on? All right, good. Uh, morning. Welcome this morning, Fellowship Nashville, for those of you who are here and those who are online. And uh, we are in the midst of a series through the Gospel of John we're calling Believe. Because in the series, our prayer is just like John's purpose in the book, is that you would believe in his name and find life in his name. And so our hope is that you would find a deeper and, and truer way of living because of encountering the Jesus of whom this book is all about. And this morning we pick up in John chapter 8. And so I'm going to encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn to actually John chapter 7, the last verse, and we'll read through 8 verse 11. And so one of the things we like to do around here is to stand for the reading of God's Word as a sign of honor. And so I invite you to do that with me now as we read through our passages this morning. Now they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that it would achieve its purpose in us that it would expose our sin, our failures, our limitations and struggles, and it would move us and drive us to you. Lord, we pray that of all the many voices that, that, that continue to plague our hearts and minds, it would be your voice that speaks loudest and truest and would set the trajectory of our lives. And so, Father, in this moment, we ask that we would hear Jesus clearly. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning we're going to talk about something that we all have experienced, something we know all too well, because it's a part of the ordinary human experience. And what it is is this, shame. We've all felt it at one time or another, to one extent or another. And shame can be defined as the emotional response that often arises when we come face to face with our sins, failures, or limitations, and I would add struggles. See, shame's what we experience when we experience our lack or our need. And, and though many of us see shame in a negative light, the reality is it can be a very positive element in our lives because God gave us the emotion of shame to move us, 
to move us into change, to move us into transformation. And so what we must recognize is that there is both a healthy and unhealthy version of this emotion of shame. And so we want to take some time to, to focus on discussing what shame really is. Now, healthy shame is a shame that recognizes our sin, failure, or limitations and moves us to respond accordingly. You see, it helps us to recognize our neediness. It helps us to recognize that, that we need help. You see, in regards to sin, it moves us to seek repentance. In failure, it moves us to seek out greater effort or training. In, in terms of limitations or struggles, it moves us to reach out for help. As Chip Dodd said, healthy shame acknowledges our deep need for our Heavenly Father and the people He specifically placed in our lives for our growth and benefit. And so when we experience a healthy version of shame, what we're going to see is we're going to see an accurate depiction of what is going on in our life. We're going to see our neediness. We're going to see our limitations. We're going to see our sin, and it's going to move us to do something with it. You see, just like any good thing that God has given us, it can be distorted. And so healthy shame can be replaced by an unhealthy shame. First could be misplaced shame. You see, misplaced shame falsely projects sin, failure, or limitations along with the emotions that accompany them upon oneself or another. It's the shame you feel when there is no good reason to feel it. You know, I have an illustration of this early in my life. It happened in first grade. You see, I'd gotten the idea that bad kids asked to go to the bathroom because it was always the troublemakers in class who asked to get out of doing their work in class. And so I was not going to be that kid. All right. And, and, and I remember this one day I had to go to the bathroom so bad and I was just waiting and longing for the teacher to dismiss us to have potty break. And, and, and I waited and I waited until I couldn't wait any longer. And you guessed it. There was a literal puddle underneath my table, underneath my chair. And in that moment, in utter complete shame, I raised my hand and said, can I go to the bathroom? And you see, I experienced shame upon shame. Now, now, let's all recognize that having to go to the restroom is a very human thing to do. We all need to do it, especially a first grade little boy. There was nothing that should have evoked shame in my heart. You see, it was a misplaced shame. And the reality is we do the same thing throughout our lives, that we begin to place on our hearts the feelings that there is a limitation, there's a sin of failure, when actually there is none. And the reality is that not only do we place this upon us, there are others who like to shame us as well. Some of you felt the shame of your family. Certain expectations, questions. Have you met a girl yet? Have you met a boy? Where are the grandkids? What's happening? There's a shaming. You, you can hear, feel it from family or from some peers when they are taken back to the here that you're waiting for marriage. You can feel the, 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 the judgment and the shame from a variety of different sources, and sometimes it goes even worse. See, there's a misplaced shame that often happens to victims of abuse, where the shame for this event is taken from the abuser onto the victim. Even this past week, I was reading a post from a good friend of mine who was sharing about her experience in abuse and of the shame she felt even though she was a victim. 
And then when she finally had the courage to let it be known, she experienced the double pile-on of shame from all of those around her. You see, she experienced misplaced shame, and it went absolutely toxic. You see, that's what ultimately misplaced shame does. It will move to the most severe form of unhealthy shame, which is toxic shame. You see, toxic shame may rightly or wrongly expose a sin failure limitation. Frankly, it doesn't matter. Sometimes it will be a a right diagnosis, sometimes not. But the main point in toxic shame is this. It offers no pathway forward. No redemption, growth, healing, restoration. You're stuck because it sticks. You see, what happens in our lives is that we begin to fall prey to this reality of toxic shame, that it binds us and defines us, that we have no future. Personally, this happens as we begin to rehearse what we believe is the reason for the shame. We play it out over and over in our hearts and our minds. And inevitably, those voices come out of nowhere, not the crazy voices, no, the ordinary voices that you have in your head that begin to say to you things like this. God could never forgive you after that. No one's going to ever want you or love you again. You know, if they really knew what was going on in your life, they'd never accept you. You must hide it. I'll never get another job. It's just as I feared. I really am above You see, in all of these questions, in all of these voices, you feel stuck. There's no way forward. And just like misplaced shame, we don't just do it to ourselves. There are others who pile on upon us. In today's nomenclature, we would call this cancel culture. As I said before, cancel culture is nothing new. We've only changed the parameters and the platforms. It used to be that you would be kind of shamed by an individual group And then you could move away, and you could get away from it. Such is not the case anymore. That no matter where you go, that hashtag can remain with you. It's as if it's a scarlet letter forever branding you for life. And you see, we have to recognize that the reality of cancel culture or shame culture has been evident throughout the centuries in a myriad of different places by a myriad of different people. And we must ask the question, why? What is so alluring about shame going viral. And I would argue the reason is this, is that we are all sinful and broken. And there's this insatiable desire for us to feel right, to feel righteous. And you see, this shaming culture helps to fill that void. Because in it, I can ignore my own sin, failures, and limitations, and I can focus in on yours. I can expose them. I can exaggerate them. And what happens in the process is I get on my high horse. I can puff up my chest. I can feel better about myself. And so I feel right. Whether the shame was rightly deserved or not, it doesn't matter because ultimately it's about what it offers me. And, 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 And I sense more and more, especially among those within the church, a growing concern. Because we find ourselves increasingly upon the receiving end. Because some of the things that we are about to believe aren't exactly amongst the zeitgeist of the culture around us. But we've got to recognize something. Is that we're starting to get a taste of our own medicine. 
Because here's the reality. For far too long, the church has been the OG of shame culture. We've been OG dealers of shame. I mean, think about people you talk to. When you begin to talk about organized religion, what will be one of the first things that they will talk about? They will talk about shame and how those people think they're so high and mighty and they shame people. You can look through our history and you can see moment by moment where we have forgotten the posture of our Savior and we've moved into the posture of the world around us because we were trying to, to, to fill up that, that, that longing for righteousness in our own lives. And so religion gave us a great platform and opportunity. What was it like in previous ages to have a child out of a wedlock? What was it like to be divorced? What was it like to struggle with same-sex attraction? What was it like to be a single in a church that seems to be all about just families? You see, the church has this uh, intentional and sometimes unintentional way of shaming individuals over and over and over again. We are the OGs. And what we must recognize is that we need help to break the cycle of shame in our lives and our communities. Max Lucado wrote this. He said, whether private or public, shame is always painful. And unless you deal with it, it is permanent. Unless you get help, the dawn will never come. And so that's what we do this morning. We want to come to Jesus for help, that, that the sun may rise in our lives and we would experience more and more freedom, both from being the dealers of shame and the recipients of it. And so we're going to look through this text this morning at what Jesus has to say to the, uh, the, the, the perpetrators or dealers of shame, the bystanders, and the receivers of shame, recipients of shame. Before we do something, uh, do this, we want to address something. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, you're probably noticing there is something weird about this passage because there are brackets and there's space. It, it literally is set apart from the rest of of your passage. And the reason is because the translators are trying to inform you that there is something different about these verses. And what's different is this. They aren't found in all of the earliest manuscripts. Now you understand that there is a discipline called textual criticism. And in textual criticism is that there are scholars who have worked to maintain um, the, the, the accuracy of our modern Greek and Hebrew um, scripts of Scripture. And so they go and they will go and take the modern text and they will look back to these earliest manuscripts to see are there any variations. And, and as they look, they sign and they see this text and say, this is not found everywhere. In fact, Greek scholars will look at it and say, um, you know, when you actually look at the terminology, the prose, etc., it doesn't exactly fit what we see elsewhere in John's writings. And so you may ask yourself, well, why is it even in there? Well, the reality is that most likely at one point, an additional editor added it to the story. And the reason why this isn't deleted from our Bibles is because there's a, a tension because this was, very, this was accepted very early on in the life of the church. Uh, additionally, is that as they look to this text, is that we understood that even in the book of John, that, that John tells us is that if there are so many other things that Jesus did that aren't recorded in the Gospels. John 21, 25. We read, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that were written. And so, so almost all uh, kind, of, kind of conservative scholars agree that this is an accurate perception of, uh, of, of what actually happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. 
Additionally, is that this is not the only time in Scripture where a later editor, who often is anonymous, adds to the script. It's not the only time in the Bible. And that doesn't bother us elsewhere. And the reason why is this, because we trust that God is sovereign over the entirety of the process. And that he will bring to bear what he needs to do. Just think about just the reality of the Bible. I think sometimes people think that this thing just literally fell out of the sky. And all of a sudden at one point. But the reality was that God revealed himself progressively over the centuries. Book by boat, book, not boat, book by book, person by person, over the centuries, he was slowly coming and revealing his truth. And so this should not bother us. And so um, this is not something to undermine your faith, but to strengthen it that we can trust the reliability. And if you have more questions, reach out to me, and, and I'll send you some resources on textual criticism and uh, ways to navigate passages like this. Now, with that said, understanding those dilemmas, understanding our conviction that this indeed is the Word of God, we can come to look at the value it has for us today. And so we're going to look first at what does Jesus have to do, say to the dealers of shame? Now, we pick up the story as Jesus has been experiencing the, the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. And everyone has gone home, and Jesus has made his way to the Mount of Olives and has come back to the temple to teach the people. Well, while he's teaching, or after he's teaching, is that all of a sudden, uh, the situation is disturbed. Because the religious leaders come dragging a woman half-naked behind them. You see, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, this situation is disturbing on all fronts. For one, how did they know this was happening? Was it a setup? Were they waiting outside the door? Secondly, where is the man? One of the things we'll notice here is that the Mosaic law did have severe penalties for adultery. But guess what? It was equal opportunity. It didn't kind of um, call out one at the expense of the other, that both equally bore the shame. And this kind of hints at one of the big things that John is trying to tell us, and it's this, these guys do not care about the law. They don't care one iota. All they care about is getting Jesus. And so you can read into that what you will, but I would tend to probably agree with whatever you're thinking right now and the inequity of the situation. Thirdly is how swift they're seeking judgment. The reality was is that things like this hardly ever happened for several reasons. One is that this was not allowed by Roman law. Two, they were urbanites, and we don't do such things. Um, and a third is that this was a serious, serious deal. And so typically what would happen in those days, if there even was a case like this, they would have a sense of uh, a process of due diligence. Why? Because this has severe implications. And so the very fact that they're trying to bring judgment immediately recognizes something's fishy about the situation. It's kind of like when Congress tries to pass a law in the middle of the night and no one got access to the documents beforehand, you know something fishy's afoot, Right? And so we should have our antennas up saying something is fishy in this moment. These guys aren't really concerned about the law. They're concerned about something else. And John keys us into that when he says that they came here to test him. You see, this was a trap. 
They, weren't care, they didn't care about religion. They didn't care about the law. They didn't care about their, these individuals. They didn't care about justice. All they cared about was an opportunity to get Jesus. And Jesus recognizes it because they're trying to trap him against the law, the Mosaic law and the Roman law. You see, when they come to Jesus and they say, well, the, the Mosaic law says such a woman should be stoned, what do you say? They're trying to pin him against the law. You see, if he says no, he has just been discredited among all of the pious Jews who define themselves by their obedience and love of Torah. And so he'd have lost all credibility among the pious crowd. On the flip end, if he says yes, he has just found himself in opposition to the Roman law. You can see this clearly in John chapter 18. In that passage, we find Jesus being brought by the religious leaders before Pilate. And remember, Pilate says to them, go try him in your own courts. And what was their response? Hey, but Pilate, we can't kill him. Remember? Only you can do that. You see, capital punishment was something reserved for the Roman authorities. And so if Jesus says, yes, go ahead, he would be seen in opposition to Rome. Additionally, it would begin to kind of um, discredit him among his main followers. Remember, who has Jesus been hanging out with? Prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. Literally defined as a friend of sinners, and now it would seem that he throws his friends underneath a bus, or rather underneath a stone. You see, they think they have Jesus trapped. And once again, it's one of those beautiful wily coyote moments in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because the very trap they set ends up as an acme anvil on their very own heads. As Jesus goes beep beep and he gets out of the way. I mean, that's, that's what he does. I mean, knows every time. You know, so now when you read these things, you'll think to yourself, beep beep, and then he just goes. You know, he's the truer and better roadrunner. Um, sorry. Um, and so you see, you see him navigating, diffusing the situation over and over and over again. You see, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And what John is pointing out is that once again, the law is nothing really in the design and desires of these religious leaders' hearts and lives. You see, they didn't do their due diligence. They ignored the man in the situation. And they were okay with lying and murder in their pursuit of throwing this woman under the bus. And you see, Jesus has some very distinct things to say to them in this situation. The first is this, understand your place. You see, in response to their question, Jesus immediately doesn't answer. He begins scribbling in the sand. Now, now we don't know exactly what he's doing. Some say he's literally doodling. Uh, kind of like as a, as, as a moment to show the absurdity of the situation. Kind of like, really? Others suppose he was writing down sins. Perhaps names of people they had done such sins with. Well, others say he may have been writing the Ten Commandments, which is an interesting connection we'll see later to this Exodus motif that recurs over and over in the section of John. Regardless, whatever he is doing, it's setting things up. And the very fact that he kind of checks them is showing that he's trying to say to them, 
Mind your place. Understand your position. You see, this ain't Judge Dredd. You're not judge, jury, and executioner. You see, that sort of immediate vengeance, the immediate discernment, would be the prerogative of he who is without sin. In other words, this is what only God could do. Only God could respond to sin in this moment in the right way this quickly. This ain't your place. You see, angry mobs don't produce righteous fruit. All right, do do we need to talk about this more? Just look at the last year. Mob justice is no justice at all. Something happens in the human heart and mind that takes over and sin goes amok. We've seen it on the steps of our Capitol building. We've seen it in cities in the middle of the night. We've seen over and over again, ultimately, you're like, this is no longer about justice. This is not about righting a wrong. This is about something in you. And so we understand mobs don't produce justice. And it's a hint of what we talk about, a legitimate authority. You see, in God's greater scheme of things, that he has created different institutions to have authority in their own spheres. In the institution of the family, it would be a parent or parents who would be authority in the situation. In the institution of the church, we find the elders, pastors, to be kind of overseeing and and responsible for the good of the larger church family. In regards to a nation, it is the government who's given a greater authority in regards to the laws of the land and even over capital punishment. And that's he's saying, you're none of those. This is not that type of situation. This isn't your place. Second thing he shows, he helps them to understand their sin. I mean, that's the whole point of him riding in the sand and asking them to begin to um, experience some introspection as they look into their own heart and say, am I coming in this moment with pure motives and pure hands and pure hearts? See, this fits in what Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew chapter 7. When he speaks of the hypocrites who go and try to take the speck out of their brother's eye while ignoring the log in their own. You see, what Jesus was saying is that, is that, is that I'm not discounting that there is sin in their life. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying until you deal with your own sin, you'll never be in a position to bring right out of this wrong. That you and I have to come and address the reality of our own deficiencies, our own sins, our own limitations in order for us to be able to then kindly, gently, and lovingly to deal with the speck, the sin in the life of another. You see, we need humility to have clarity. Let me say it again. We need humility to have clarity. And you see, that's one of the things that boggles me so much about cancel culture. Every time I see the hashtag one more time, I think to myself, are you telling me that you've never had an inappropriate thought, word, deed? Like you're going to throw them in the bus. And, and as we've seen time and again, how many times have we seen someone join on the pylon only to be thrown underneath it two weeks later? You see, there's a humility that comes when we recognize when I see sin in another, I also have to recognize sin in my own heart and my own life. And so Jesus helps them by helping them to understand their sin. And the last thing he does is he helps them to understand their worth. You see, by checking it, by pumping the brakes, he is trying to inform them what is going on here. Like, this woman is worthy 
of a judge without ulterior motives. This woman is worthy of due diligence. This woman is worthy of the basic dignity that every man, woman, child created in the image of God deserves. You see, what so often happens in cancel culture in our own hearts and minds, what we do is that we begin to exalt ourselves while exposing and exaggerating the sins of another, denying my sin, exposing yours. And what that does, it helps me to, to feel good about myself and to minimize their worth. And as I said before, that, that when we belittle people, when we make them less than human, we can do anything with them that we want. We can abuse them. We can enslave them. We can destroy them because they're less than human. Just look throughout the centuries of what we've done, whether it's genocide, infanticide, slavery, Jim Crow. Over and over, we have this repeated history that we minimize someone, reduce them, and then we do whatever we want to them. And if Jesus wants to check them and to check us by showing, you need to understand the essential dignity that anyone made in my image deserves. And that checks us. It puts things in their proper place. That we then are enabled to have the humility and clarity we need to address what we see before us. See, that's what he says to dealers of shame. Know your place, know your sin, and know their worth. The next thing I want to talk about is what does he have to say to the bystanders to shame? You see, his example tells something to us. You see, Jesus had a choice in this story. He could have remained silent. He could have fought. But Jesus masterfully navigates the situation by diffusing the bomb and defending this woman. You see, he helps us to understand what's at stake. You see, his platform was at stake. Were he to answer in the wrong way, he would lose his moral authority. He would lose the trust of the people he was trying to minister to. And the reality is, is that when we remain silent or we respond the wrong way, what ultimately is undermined is our platform. And can we admit that the platform of the church in America has been undermined at least a little bit by our actions over what the last several centuries? That we undermine our platform when we do not faithfully and fully speak to air no matter where it comes from and no matter what it's about. You see, we're hypocrites. And Jesus understands that there is great wisdom that must come as he navigates this so to maintain his ability to speak to the issues of the day, the issues of their hearts. And he does it masterfully. The other thing he understands at stake is the reality of a person's life. I mean, her life figuratively and literally was on the line in that moment. And you see, when we fail to follow in Jesus' pathway in regards to how we address and engage sinful people in sinful activities, as it often will reap horrific ramifications for those involved. Going back to being the OG dealers of shame, how many people who've experienced sins, failures and struggles feel like there could never be a seat in a place like this for someone like them. 
You see, our posture of shaming has made them feel as if they are not welcome in our midst. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you see that he is the one who is defending the defenseless. He is the one who is coming to the aid of broken sinners like you and like me. And he says to them, it says to her and says to us that our sin does not disqualify us from his grace. That he will defend you just like he defended her. You see, we have to understand what's at stake and to understand our responsibility for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. You see, by his grace, he has called us his own. We've been brought into his family, and we've been called to, to, to live in light of the family resemblance and to be his ambassadors to the world. And when we fail to reflect the heart of God in our interaction with sinners, and our interaction in the sinful, broken world is that we have to understand the implications of that dereliction of duty, that you have the responsibility and the privilege to being the hands and the feet of Jesus to a needy and watching world. And the reality is, is when you come in similar posture, you come just like we see time and time in Scripture, time and time again. You see, the interesting thing about this passage is there are these motifs, these connections to the Exodus story. You see, in Exodus 31 to 34, we find some similar themes in each of these stories. In Exodus 31, we find when God is writing the Ten Commandments on these tablets of stones, we read that he wrote them with his finger. Just as Jesus was writing these things in the sand with his fingers as well. We then are confronted with sexual immorality. Now, in Exodus 32, uh, Moses and Joshua hear a roar from the camp. They assume maybe they're being attacked, but they eventually find out that the, the, the Israelites had, had erected a, a, an idol and had um, uh, indulged in some extracurricular activities as a community, if you get my drift. All right, adults, we all, we all know what I'm talking about right now? All right. Things have gone off the chain in the camp of Israel. Sexual immorality is rampant. And the question will be, so how is God prophet going to respond? How is God going to respond to something like this? Well, it's interesting because, because God uh, comes with a certain posture to Moses. You know, there are those who argue that God changes his mind. I would say that is a, that is a, a baloney, is that God has tools in his belt. You know, in, in the Garden of Eden, when God says to Adam and Eve, after they sin, essentially, where are you and what have you done? Is Jesus real or is God really in the dark? No, what's he doing? He's trying to get them to respond, to confess. You see, in this moment, God is taking a certain posture as a tool in his belt to evoke a response from his prophet Moses, to see, has my prophet understood my heart for my people, and then come to their aid. And so God comes and says, hey, in essence, uh, they're going to get what they deserve. 
You cool with that, Moses? And Moses is like, uh-uh. God, don't you remember what you said? Don't you remember what this means? He comes and claims the heart and promises of God. And I imagine God smirking and saying, all right, we'll do that. You see, in both of these stories, we find God's prophet coming to the aid of the sexually immoral, coming to their defense. And each ends, in essence, with an invitation to sinners. And what's so beautiful about the Exodus account in Exodus 34 is that God says this about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is the heart of God. That's what he offered to the Israelite people. Who is on the Lord's side? Are you going to come to him or are you going to remain where you are? That's what he says to this woman. As he calls her and invites her into news of life, of turning her back upon her sin and turning toward her Savior. You see, this is what he has to say to those on the sidelines of shame. Thirdly, what does Jesus have to say to the recipients of shame? Now, I want you to put, you, put yourself in the place of this woman for a second. She has literally experienced the worst day of her life. Not only was she caught literally in the act, because that's the type of um, uh, criteria they had to make it such an accusation. She is caught in the act. She's brought off most likely half naked, dragged in front of the entire community, and all of a sudden stands with a firing squad surrounding her. What do you think she felt? I imagine her shaking and sobbing. And Jesus makes his way over to her. And so gently he says to her, Woman, where'd everyone go? Is there no one left to accuse you? And you can imagine her weeping and through her tears saying to him, No, no, Lord. And then he says those words to her, Neither do I. There was one who was without sin, who alone had the right and the authority to enact the consequences for her sin there and then. And he was not willing. Why? Because God is patient. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And so in that moment, he comes to her in order to drive from her the remaining accuser in her life. But here's the reality. When we first experience shame, in that moment, in those circumstances, Eventually, those circumstances change. Life moves on. But the reality is, so often the voices do not. It's as if you're constantly haunted by the ghost of your past, repeating over and over the accusations. You see, that is the, the living embodiment of toxic shame, where you are stuck 
because the accusations forever stick. And Jesus in this moment loves this woman so much that he wants her to understand the freedom he is really offering her. That he wants to hush any and every accuser before men, before God, and before her own heart. Because he understands a chained life will never be a changed life. And he wants this woman to live. And once he, what's he want her to understand is twofold. He wants her to understand that she has been freed. That the weight and the shame of her sin, the voices of the accusation, of the accusers, are hers no more. Now, I want to point out that he doesn't act as if she had done nothing wrong. He recognizes the sin. But notice what he does. He releases her from the shame. The second thing he does is he wants her to understand what she had been freed for. You see, often when we hear this story, Todd, there are those who love to exalt just the stop throwing stones moment. Like, Jesus, he's cool with whatever feels good to you, wherever you want to be. You see, the real Jesus both speaks to not throwing stones and speaks to go sin no more. Why does he do that? He's not going to free you from one slavery to just let you be enslaved to another. He wants you to be free. He wants to release you both from the penalty of sin and the power of sin over your life. You know, we walked alongside a woman who was steeped into drugs and prostitution. And, and miraculously, she came to Jesus. And I began to notice that something began to shift after this newfound life. And she began to revert to her old ways, ultimately landing her in the hospital, having her stomach pumped because of the drugs that she took. We love this woman. And we would just be begging with her. We don't want you to be a slave. We want you to be free. And you must understand this moment, that is Jesus' posture to this woman. This act does not define you, and it will not bind you. Why? Because it's not yours anymore. It's mine. I'm the one who's intervened. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And the beautiful thing about this passage to me is that one word now. Because whenever is it not now. Then the moment where you have failed miserably in your sexual life, there is still no condemnation now. When you've been confronted 
by the ugliness of your sin and your selfishness, there still is no condemnation now. When you find yourself struggling with faith and feeling the, the, the gap between you and God, there is still no condemnation now. And it's because of this reality that you have been free, that you can begin to understand what you have been freed for. That you have been freed for life. Both in the extent and in the experience of. You see, we must, we must recognize that apart from Jesus, this woman's life was literally over. Unless Jesus intervened, the story was over. But because Jesus intervened, her life and her story had just begun. You see, despite their ulterior, ulterior motives, the accusers had a point. She had sinned sexually. And according to the law, via the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, she did deserve death. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for the wages of sin is death. In fact, for those who balk at this, he also says those who, who basically curse their parents deserve death too. So equal opportunity. All of us without exception, this is what we deserve. But this is not what he wants. And he understood the only way to silence them was to defend her and ultimately replace her. You see, Jesus became her substitute. He took her sin. He took her shame. And he died the death that she deserved. And you and I must recognize the only way that we can be truly free the only way that, that our accusers can be fully and finally silenced is for Jesus to intervene for us as well, taking our sin and our shame. See, that's what he's offering you right now. All the shame that has been stirring in your heart in this moment or for years that you've longed to get rid of but you thought you could never find a way out that Jesus has entered into your prison and opened the door and he is saying to you now, will you follow me? Do you want to stay here and abide in your prison or do you want to come with me and find life? Which will you choose? Now as we wind up this sermon, I want to give a few takeaways for us as we walk away from this passage. First, before you judge someone else, take time to remind yourself of your sin, failures, and limitations and of their significance and worth. Remember, humility brings clarity. Second, when facing an injustice, do not let fear or allegiances keep you from wisely addressing the lies, hypocrisies, and harm you see before you. Remember what's at stake. And third, when your sin and shame begin to bind and define you, Bring it to Jesus and leave it with him. Why? Because it's not yours anymore. Now, one of my favorite stories of the German reformer Martin Luther 
is the story of what he did one day when facing the accusation of his heart. Now, now Luther was a little crazy, all right? So, so he had these, like, kind of, uh, these arguments with the devil at moments, threw some inkwells or something at them, and, and uh, it's a kind of hilarious story. But, but the reality was he was a man who struggled immensely with the accusations of his heart. And as he was growing in the gospel, this one day when he felt a, a, a extremely oppressed is that he said to him, in essence, what of it? Everything you say is true, but here's the deal. It's not mine. You see, Jesus has taken my sin and my shame, and if it's his, it is no longer mine. And so if you've got an issue, you've got an accusation, take it up with him. You see, if you've come to Jesus Christ, the sin and the shame that has penalized you and had power over you, has no more jurisdiction. It's not yours anymore. It's his. You see, this morning we come to participate in the Lord's Supper. And in this meal, we come recognizing the beauty and wonder of what Jesus has done so that we can come understanding when we come with our sin, it is not ours anymore, it's his. And as we receive this elements, we realize that what was his is now mine. That you were given a seat at his table. You were a recipient of his love and an heir to his riches. Why? Because Jesus interceded. And so as we come now, I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to invite the band up. And I want you to begin to have a moment of introspection and ask yourself, where do I feel the shame? Where are the voices consistently recurring and coming up in my heart and mind, and how is it binding me? And what I want to ask you to do as those things begin to become impressed upon your mind and heart is to remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you this morning. That he intervened. And as we take of this cup, the spread, in the action of it, I want you to come and say, Lord, as I drink this, Lord, as I eat this, Lord, I give you mine, would you give me yours? I give you my sin. I give you my shame. Give me your righteousness. Give me your love. Give me your strength. Give me a fuller experience of the Spirit of God. Lord, we thank you that as far as east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. And Lord, for those who are still abiding under the weight of their sin, oh Lord, would you give them deliverance? For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.